بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان سيدنا ومولانا محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا الى يوم الدين اما بعد so today we begin from point number 31 which is the section on the prophet muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the prophecy so next section is about the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam it's quite brief before imam tahawi goes back to speaking about the quran or speaking about allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but later on there's going to be more discussion about prophethood and then the sahaba and so on and so forth as well imam tahawi says wa anna muhammadan abduhu al-mustafa wa nabiyyuhu al-mushtaba wa rasuluhu al-murtada point number 31 we believe muhammad is his chosen one his preeminent prophet and his messenger with whom he is well pleased So there's three things that he mentioned here. Number one, that Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is the chosen servant of Allah. I mean, abd. The word abd is used here. Number two, it says preeminent prophet, mujtaba, preeminent prophet. That's one meaning of it. Another meaning of mujtaba, the more common meaning of mujtaba, is also the chosen one, the selected one. It has a similar meaning to Mustafa as Maidani says that it's like Mustafa both in terms of its pronunciation in the scale and also in terms of its meaning. I think the translator here translates it as preeminent to make it different. Uh, obviously anybody that Allah chooses for that position will become preeminent. Wa rasuluhu al-murtada. That's a bit different. And his messenger murtada. That comes from rida which means to be pleased with so his messenger with whom he is well pleased this is part of our belief our belief in the prophets of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he sent individuals who are very complete specially selected who would not sin because they were divinely protected from sinning and they were the best of their people there were no mistakes made in who allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this is very different from the belief of some other faiths i remember once we were in a program uh, with a rabbi and he said we're not encouraged to be like our prophets and he says there's a story that's related in hebrew literature or in judaic literature which says that god will ask a person what did you do in your life he said that i tried to emulate daud alayhi salam david peace be upon him and i tried to be like him in every way that i could So God will say to him that that's not what I created you for I created one Daud right you should have been unique like yourself you know you should have done things for yourself that's very different from the way the muslims see this for us the prophets are the best exemplars for for mankind and for us it's the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam because the information that we have of him and him being the chosen and the greatest of the prophets and everything that's related about him is historically proven stands the test of historicity and comes down to us so we're actually told to emulate him and his sahaba because that was the most glorious period for us and this messenger of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sallallahu alayhi wasallam was 
a very specially selected one in this part of our belief that he is Allah's servant, which basically means that he's not another creation, but he's a servant, he's abd in that position of servitude. Our belief is that he is a human being. He's specially selected. He was selected as a prophet and as a messenger. So he says here, first thing he says is abd, because that's the basic and initial nature of the human being is to be an abd. And the greater abd a person is, which means the greater the level of servitude that a human being has, that is how much he is fulfilling his own position in this world in relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because our position in this world is of being servants of Allah, the created beings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we need to recognize that fact. That fact needs to be in our conscience all the time. The more it is, the more present that feeling is within us. And the more we give that expression, that's how much greater of a servant we will be. That's true humanity. That's true servitude. And that's true abdiyya. That's why many ulama mentioned that the reason why abd, like subhanalladhi asra bi abdihi laylam min al-masjid al-harami ila al-masjid al-aqsa, some consider the abd title to be actually higher than prophet. Because abd is at that really, really fundamental level where a person acts that way, whereas Nabi is what is given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to select individuals. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the greatest of the abd. I remember a friend of mine, he went to study in Mauritania. I guess there they eat like the Saudis do, where they you know, take the rice with whole handfuls. Like they take a whole handful of rice, they kind of roll it in a bowl and then they, they eat it. And he was trying to act on the sunnah by eating with three fingers. They said to him, as a joke, they said to him that, Kul ka akli rijal. Like, eat like a man. So, so he turns around and he says, Ana a'kulu ka afdal rijal. I'm eating like the best of men. You know, which is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, in everything of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is there an emulation for us? And he says, Abduhu al-Mustafa, his specially selected servant. So he's just not any servant of Allah. This one's a specially selected servant. Wa nabiyuhu wa rasuluhu. There's two points mentioned here, Nabi and Rasul. First is Nabi, his selected Nabi or Prophet. Prophet, it's an okay translation, apostle, somebody that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends. Rasul, messenger. We're using Prophet and messenger to make that distinction. There's actually a distinction between Nabi and Rasul, which I'll speak about. Nabi is more general than Rasul. There's a hadith in Musnad Ahmad in which the Prophet ﷺ was asked how many prophets did Allah send or how many prophets were there? How many anbiya? Nabi, plural anbiya. How many anbiya were there? And the Prophet ﷺ said about 124,000. 124,000. Now this hadith isn't as strong. That's why the ulama mentioned that we can't insist on that figure in terms of our aqidah. Like if somebody says there was only 124,000, all right. That would mean that had there been more, because there's a possibility of more, we would actually be negating prophethood from the additional. And that's, that would be problematic. Or if there were less than 124, then we would be establishing prophethood for more than were prophets. That's why it's an approximate figure that was given by the Prophet ﷺ. We take that just to get an idea. And then he also said that 313 of them were Rasul, were Rusul which means messengers, which is a more specific category. The Prophet ﷺ was both a Nabi and a Rasul. 
Musa alayhi salam was both a Nabi and a Rasul. Ibrahim alayhi salam was both a Nabi and a Rasul. Yusha bin Nun was only a Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam alayhi salatu wasalam. Likewise, when you have Harun alayhi salam, he was a Nabi. You have Musa alayhi salam, he was a messenger. He was a Rasul. Every Rasul has to be a Nabi. But not every Nabi has to be a Rasul or is a Rasul. Because Rasul is more specific. It's a special category. The other thing is he used the word Abd here. That is the most beloved name according to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ahabbul Asma'i ilallahi ta'ala. Abdullah wa Abdul Rahman. Those two names because of the Abd. Servant of Allah. Servant of the Rahman. The most merciful one. That's one of the most kamil and perfect and complete designations of the human being. And that's why... That was used. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that term in the Quran in you know some of the most loftiest of descriptions. He says, Anzala ala abdihi al kitab. He sent on his servant, he revealed on his servant the book. Nazal al furqana ala abdi. Furqan is a criterion which is the Quran on his servant. When the servant of Allah stood up to propagate to them. Again, he uses the word Abdullah there. For the Prophet Abdihi, Glorified be that Lord who took his servant by night. Allah revealed to his servant that which he revealed to him. He didn't say Prophet. It's a very special position that we should all aspire to. The position of high Abdiyya. We obviously can't reach the same position as the Prophet The Prophet said, this is a hadith related by Ibn Majah and Tirmidhi from Ibn ibn Hussein radiallahu an. The Prophet said that, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَى كِنَانَةً مِنْ وُلْدِ إِسْمَائِيلِ وَاصْطَفَى قُرَيْشًا مِنْ كِنَانَةً وَاصْطَفَى مِنْ قُرَيْشٍ بَنِي هَاشِمْ وَاصْطَفَانِ مِنْ بَنِي هَاشِمْ So how is the Prophet the Mustafa, the specially selected one, this was a process that began a long time ago. The Prophet ﷺ said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selected or chose the Kinana, the tribe of Kinana, from the children of Ismail alayhi salam. Now obviously from Ibrahim alayhi salam, Ismail alayhi salam was chosen. Prophet ﷺ started after and said, Kinana was chosen from the children of Ismail. The Quraysh then were chosen from the Kinana, from among the Kinana. And then from the Quraysh, the Banu Hashim were chosen and specially selected. And then from them, I was chosen from all of the Banu Hashim. The word Prophet, وَنَبِيُّهُ الْمُجْتَبَى The word Nabi could come from the root Naba, which means to give information. Because a Nabi, in that sense, will be the active participle, is the one giving information from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala conveying the message. It could also be taken the other way around as a passive participle, the one given information because he's, Allah reveals to him. So Nabi could actually be both an active or a passive participle of Naba. Scholars have actually defined in terms of a definition of a Nabi. It's very important to know this so that we can you know, allocate this term properly. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani gives the definition of a prophet as insanun hurrun, a free human being, not a slave. Dhakarun min bani Adam, from the human beings, a male from the human beings, so not from the jinn. Which basically means that according to him and according to the majority of scholars, there were no prophets from among the jinn. There were prophets of the human beings to the jinn, but not from among the jinn. It has to be a male as well. And that's the agreement of the majority of scholars as well. There are some claim prophethood for 
certain women like the mother of Isa alayhi salam, the wife of Pharaoh, etc., etc. But the majority opinion is that prophethood, nubuwa, prophecy, was a designation only given to the male human. So he said, "Insanun hurrun dhakarun min bani Adam uhiya ilayhi bi sharin wa illam yu'mar bi tablighihi." A free human being, a male from among the bani Adam, from among the human beings, who Allah reveals a sharia to, but he's not necessarily given the command to propagate it. That's the distinguishing factor with a Rasul. Where the Rasul has to propagate it, and sometimes the Rasul is also given a book or a scripture. Warasuluhu, the word Rasul. Definition of Rasul: Insanun hurrun dhakarun min bani Adam uhiya ilayhi bi sharin wa umira bi tablighihi sawaun kana ma'hu kitabun unzil alayhi liyuballighahu nasikhan li shari man qablahu aw ghayri nasikhin lahu aw ala man qablahu wa umira bi da'wati nasi ilayhi aw lam yakun lahu dhalik bi an umira bi tablighi alwahy min ghayri kitabin fa huwa akhassu min an-nabi Free human being Allah inspires with a sharia and he's been commanded to propagate it, whether he has a book that's revealed on him to propagate or not. So a book is not necessary. We know about 104 books. The four main ones, the Torah, Zabur, Injil, and the Quran. And there were a number of scriptures on Ibrahim salam, Adam salam, Sheikh salam, and others. So we know about 104, but there's 313 messengers mentioned. So Allah knows best exactly, but according to this definition, they don't have to have a book. But the difference is that they're told to propagate. In some cases, they are also abrogating the previous sharia. For instance, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam sharia, the sharia Muhammadiyah, is an abrogator of all the previous sharia. So anything that was a remnant from the previous ways of the Prophets, they would no longer be applicable, especially if they contradicted. And the adab that we have when dealing with people of other faiths, is that if they say something, if it conforms to what we have, we agree with it and we confirm it. If it contradicts, then we reject it. And if you're unsure about its contradiction or rejection, confirmation or contradiction, then we remain silent. Because we don't want to venture into a place we don't know about. That would be the case with some of the wording in the Bible. For instance, of what they have today in the book form, how you deal with some of the wording in there. If there's a contradiction, you'd reject it. If it's a confirmation of certain core elements, then that would be confirmed. Otherwise, we stay silent. Al-Murtada. The reason is Murtada is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showered him with his blessings and specially selected him and chose him. Point 32. These are some additional qualities of the Prophet ﷺ. He is the finality of the Prophets, the paragon of the pious, the master of the messengers, and the beloved of the Lord of all the worlds. So he is the Khatamul Anbiya. Walakin Rasulallahi wa Khatam al-Nabiyyin, as Allah says. He is the messenger of Allah and the seal of the Prophets, which means that he is the final, the seal, something that you complete something with. As the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith, he gave an example of a building, a beautiful structure that people go around and they admire it. When it comes to one side, there's some bricks missing. There's a brick or so missing, which basically spoils the facade of that. So the Prophet ﷺ said that, I am that labina. I am that brick that's come to finalize the core message and the fundamental 
message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to mankind and to complete good character. So he is the seal. وَخُتِمَ بِي According to a hadith in Muslim, I was the last of the prophets, the seal of the prophets. وَإِمَامُ الْأَتْقِيَاءِ He is the imam of all of the righteous ones. So he is the leader of the righteous, basically the most righteous. Atqiya is from taqwa, a person who has taqwa, from taqi, it's a plural. Taqwa is basically an abundance in taking care, in caution, in scrupulousness with regards to the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Being Muslims, we all have the first level of taqwa, which is to abstain from eternal abode in the hellfire. By becoming a Muslim, that takes a person out of being in hellfire forever. Even if they're sinful, they get punished for a short while and then they'll come out. This relates to a question that we had yesterday based on the hellfire coming to an end. That opinion that's related to Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, that was about the entire hellfire one day coming to an end and ceasing to exist, including, you know, with all of its inhabitants. Of course, our belief is that any believer who has true faith in the Prophet of the time, a believer of the Prophet of the time, is a sinful person, Allah chooses to send him to hell to be cleansed. After the cleansing, he will be sent to paradise. Then there's other levels of taqwa, higher levels of taqwa, to abstain from all sins and everything, so that we don't even end up in the hellfire, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with us. There's different levels of taqwa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, اِتَّقُوا haqqa tuqatih." Have fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as much as He has the right of being feared. وَسَيِّدُ mursaleen The leader of all of the messengers. He's the leader of all of the messengers. The Prophet ﷺ said, as related in Imam Ahmad's Musnad and Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu an, أَنَا سَيِّدُ وُلْدِ آدَمْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ وَلَا فَخْرِ That I am the leader of the children of Adam on the day of judgment. And I say this without any pride. وَبِيَّدِي لِوَاءُ الْحَمْدِ وَلَا فَخْرِ I will have the flag of praise or the standard of praise on that day and that I say without pride. وَمَا مِن نَبِيٍّ يَوْمَئِذٍ آدَمُ فَمَنْ سِوَاهُ إِلَّا تَحْتَ لِوَائِ There will be no prophet on that day, Adam salam or anybody else, except that they will be under my banner on that day. I'll be their leader. When we're talking about prophets... We can't speak about any one prophet in a way that it will put down below their status any other prophet. But it's okay to speak of the fada'il of, or the virtues of, or excellence of one prophet in a way that does not diminish another prophet but just shows an additional excellence of a particular prophet. So we're talking about Yusuf and his beauty, that doesn't mean that the others were below what they were. Is just to show that Yusuf had an outstanding handsomeness. We talk about Prophet all the great features that are mentioned about him and all the great qualities and everything. It's not in a way to put anybody else down. Because it says, Those were the messengers we gave some excellence over others in terms of an additional benefit. None of them were considered incomplete. All of them were complete except that some just had some additional excellences. And the Prophet ﷺ was the greatest of them. So that's very, very necessary because the Prophet ﷺ told us that don't put me up so high that leads others to be diminished. He says, لَا نُفَرِّقُ بَيْنَ أَحَدٍ مِّنْهُمْ We don't differentiate between any of them. That refers to not diminishing anyone below their status. Not that we can't mention the excellences of some. 
he clinches this by saying, وَحَبِيبُ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ He's the most beloved of the Lord of the worlds. And there's a hadith to this effect in which the Prophet ﷺ heard people talking about Ibrahim ﷺ, Adam ﷺ and others, saying Ibrahim was the Khalil of Allah, which from, comes from Khilla. See, one is Sadaqah, which means friendship, just a general acquaintance. You become a Sadiq. Then you become a Khalil, which means you become more intimate. It's a more intimate relationship. Then when you become Habib, that's even a more intimate, intense relationship. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ enjoyed. And he said that, that Ibrahim is the Khalil of Allah, but ana Habibullahi. That I am the Habib of Allah, the most beloved of Allah. And he uses that here. I mean, this is actually very eloquent, the way Imam Tahawi brings these points together, where he first mentions his position as an abd and as a prophet and messenger. And then he talks about how he compares to all of the other prophets. And we need to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that blessing that he is, we are in his ummah. He is an emissary to all the jinn and the whole of humanity with truth and guidance, light and radiance. So the Prophet ﷺ, one distinctive factor over many other prophets was that his prophethood is not going to be limited except by the end of this world. So his prophecy extends all the way from his time, the 1400 years that have passed, and all the way until the last day. And it's to all people and it's to all creatures. So it's to the jinn as well. The Prophet ﷺ said, I have been sent to everyone, to all. He is the emissary to all of the jinn and the whole of humanity with truth and guidance, light and radiance. What is a jinn? That's part of our aqidah to believe in that creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're made from a special fire. Just like angels are made from a special nur and light. We are considered to be created from soil. Though we don't really see soil as part of us. So it's our origin. But now it looks different. Just like try to take the flour out of bread once it's baked. You know, it's a similar kind of thing. So it's a special type of fire that the jinn were created from. And it's a special type of light that the angels were created from. But just their origins tell us the nature of those things. The angels and their angelic qualities, light is a purer thing than is fire for instance. And the human being is from soil. That's why we need humbleness and humility. One of the definitions of jinn is وَهُمْ أَجْسَامٌ عَاقِلَةٌ خَفِيَّةٌ يَغْلِبُ عَلَيْهِمُ النَّارِيَّةُ وَالْهَوَىٰ These are subtle bodies that have a form of intellect, but fire and hawa, desire, is dominant on them. What the scholars say about jinn, those who've studied the jinn, is that they have a very high imagination. That's why if jinns convey anything, you have to really, really take that with a grain of salt, like a lots of salt. Because they, they have a huge imagination. So they would blow the reality out of proportion and may say something. You know, there's hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ mentioned how before his prophethood, the jinn would get on top of one another and form this line up to the heavens. And then they would listen to the speech of the angels. This is something that may have been given to them. But after his prophethood, they could not do that. That's why in Surah Al-Jinn it talks about a, a group of jinn 
that when that was sent out in groups, uh, well, groups of jinn were sent out in jamaat, you know, like tablighi jamaat, they were sent out in groups, to find out what was it that had caused this change in the universe. They weren't able to go up to the heavens. I mean, there were massive changes that took place in the heavens and the earth due to the birth of the Prophet It's like the whole thing was prepared for it. Avenues were closed of additional deviants, etc., etc. So these were sent out. There was one particular group, and they were nasibin or nasibiyin. And that's where the Prophet was returning, and he stopped there to make fajr. قُلْ أُوحِيَ إِلَيَّ أَنَّهُ اسْتَمَعَ نَفَرٌ مِّنَ الْجِنِّ فَقَالُوا إِنَّا سَمِعْنَا قُرْآنًا عَجَبًا that, that part was revealed. When they observed this, they went back and they embraced. So the jinn, they have this imagination and you know, they have the various faiths among them and so on and so forth. Our belief though, the fundamental belief that we have to have is that there is such a creature, the jinn, as Allah mentions in the Qur'an, and they have been created for worship like the human beings have. And as Allah mentions in the Quran that we created them from a particular type of fire. Beyond that, as to how many jinns there are and what their description is, etc., 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 those things are all additional. What's important is that we believe them that this is another creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet ﷺ was sent to them. There are hadith from Abdullah ibn Masood and others in which the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have gone to meet the jinn. And discussions took place. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was actually told to stay back within a circle. And so on and so forth. So there's a lot of detail there. It's not the time for that. I know it's an interesting topic for most people. And the whole of humanity. With truth and guidance, light and radiance. So, haq from the Lord. That's the truth from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Huda is, again, guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالنُورُ وَالضِّيَاءُ Which is, this بِالنُورِ وَالضِّيَاءُ That's not in all of the versions of this book. It's only in some of the books. بِالنُورِ وَالضِّيَاءُ That's not in all of the books. There'll be more discussion about this afterwards. But for now, we move on to the next section, which is the Qur'an, the speech of Allah. Okay, point 33, we missed that. وَكُلُّ دَعْوَ النُّبُوَّةِ بَعْدَهُ فَغَيٌّ وَهَوًا any claim to prophecy after him is deviation and heresy. Any claim to prophethood after him is a form of deviance, ignorance. And it's probably spurred on by hawa, which means desire for position or for gain. Musaylam al-Kadhaw was one of the famous or notorious ones who did strange things. Even during the Prophet's final days, there were people who came up trying to declare prophethood. They thought it was a good way to, for them to gain some popularity and material means. And then after the Prophet, there were quite a few others that actually sprung up like nearly immediately. There was a woman who did that as well. So one imposter and, and a female, they got married together. Musaylama, some of the things that he tried to do in trying to emulate miracles... One thing is, uh, there was a well he tried to spit in there and say that it would become more pleasant. And it actually became worse. He put some saliva on somebody's eye and the, the one that was good became bad. These were some of the things that, by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala humili- humiliated uh, such people. Abu Bakr radiallahu fought against a lot of these and, and quelled these problems during his khilafah. Musaylama came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and said that let it be half mine and half yours. Well, that's an agreement. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi Despite his great generosity in all other states, he actually said that if you asked me for this, was it a little piece of rope or a twig? He said, I wouldn't even give you this much. 
Because, you know, this was to put down a deviance. You know, we've had the Qadiani, we've had Baha'u'llah from the Baha'is. We've had, uh, when you go to Christians, they've had quite a few as well. One of them was somebody, Smith in New York. There was the Mormon one, the Church of Latter-day Saints. The majority of Christians really hate Mormons. I mean, that's somebody they just can't stand. The thing is that they are multiplying faster than many other Christian sects. They actually have a major school, a Dawah center, where people are sent for a good year or so for training. And then they're sent out throughout the world. And they've got a particular attire that they wear. They ride their bikes. They've got their rucksacks on the back. And they suit two guys all the time. And they go. I don't know, you've probably seen them here. But there's amazing figures. Actually, when you read, there was a, an article in the Time magazine about this. From what they were just a, a decade ago to where they are right now, it's, it's just amazing. I've actually passed their center in Salt Lake City, Utah, where their main cathedral is and everything. They've actually got the most in-depth database of genealogy and ancestry in the world. Okay, the next section is the Qur'an, the speech of Allah. This is obviously something that we have indicated towards and have discussed lightly. There were questions about this as well. Point number 35. وَإِنَّ الْقُرْآنَ كَلَامُ اللَّهِ مِنْهُ بَدَى بِلَا كَيْفِيَّةٍ قَوْلًا وَأَنزَلَهُ عَلَىٰ رَسُولِهِ وَحْيًا وَصَدَّقَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ عَلَىٰ ذَلِكَ حَقًّا وَصَدَّقَهُ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ عَلَىٰ ذَلِكَ حَقًّا وَأَيْقَنُوا أَنَّهُ كَلَامُ اللَّهِ تَعَالَىٰ بِالْحَقِيقَةِ The Qur'an is the word of Allah that emanated from Him without modality in its expression, without any form of description in its expression. He sent it down to his messenger as a revelation. The believers accept it as such, literally. They are certain it is, in reality, the word of Allah, the sublime and exalted. One possible reason for putting this after the Prophet Muhammad despite it being one of the attributes of Allah, is that because the messenger of Allah is the intermediary here through which the Qur'an came, that's why he introduced the Prophet first and then he added the Qur'an. That's a possibility. Okay, I'm not reading the author's mind. This is just a, a speculative possibility here. Let's look at this carefully. And then he says, لَيْسَ بِمَخْلُوقٍ كَكَلَامِ الْبَرِيَّةِ Unlike human speech, it is eternal and uncreated. First thing is that the Qur'an is the kalam of Allah. I mean, that's a belief that we have and that's what we normally say. And that's what's required of us to say that the Qur'an is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It emanated from Him without modality. Right? That shows the origin of the kalam. That it's from Allah. It originated from Him, it emanated from Him without modality in its expression. That's what we have to be careful about. We can't say exactly how the speech is and so on and so forth. We have got a bit of a description. But how Allah speaks, obviously this is something beyond us. There are some deviances in this regard where some people say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because He's saying that He speaks... Speaking is a form, speaking has to be with words and letters and sounds, and thus Allah has words and letters and sounds. That's problematic. Because then you're limiting Allah in some way like the human being. It's us when we want to speak, then we have to speak with words, letters and sound. For somebody to hear, they need to be close enough and so on and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not restricted by these forms of means. He can speak without sounds and letters and that's the belief of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. The Mu'tazila, again having this problem of 
no independent attributes because if they're eternal then they've got problems they pass this one off very easily by saying but very critically and very problematically by saying that the speech of Allah is a created thing that he created in something else like in the Lawh al-Mahfuz in the Messenger وسلم, through Jibreel alayhi salam so it's not an eternal speech it's something he said later on it's a created speech and that is what was the biggest problem that they had and that's what they forced others to believe you know when I alluded to the speech of Allah problem that Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal had to deal with and so on and so forth so let's look at this a bit more in detail because this was actually one of the most important discussions of Aqidah by which the whole science was called Ilmul Kalam according to some, though it's not as necessary today. But since you are special people who've come to study this in depth, that, that's why it's important that we bring this up so that you know what some of these problems were in the past. Bajori mentions that the Hashawiyah, this was a group of people that had some problems in the way they dealt with the Sifat of Allah and the ambiguous terms. Some people have translated that as the crypto anthropomorphists. وَطَائِفَةٌ سَمَّوْ أَنفُسَهُمْ بِالْحَنَابِلَةٌ And a group who call themselves the Hanbalis. Right? So he's trying to say that the real Hanbalis are different. These are people who are just claiming themselves to be Hanbalis, but without the real madhab of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. They said, كَلَامُهُ تَعَالَى هُوَ الْحُرُوفُ وَالْأَصْوَاتَ الْمُتَوَالِيَةِ الْمُتَرَتِّبَةِ وَيَزْعَمُونَ أَنَّهَا قَدِيمَةِ they said that the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comprises of words and sounds, comprises of a string of words and sounds, and they think that this is eternal. The problem there, وَتَعَالَى بَعْضُهُمْ حَتَّى زَعَمَ قِدَمَ هَذِهِ الْحُرُوفِ الَّتِي نَقْرَأُهَا وَالرُّسُومِ بَلْ تَجَاوَزَ جَهْلُ بَعْضِهِمْ لِغِلَافِ الْمُصْحَفِ Some of them went extreme, and they said that, even the words that we read, the words which are printed, that we read or that, that we write, those are also eternal. In fact, someone beyond that said even the cover of the copy of a Qur'an is also eternal. I mean, you can understand the absurdity of that. The Mu'tazila just passed it off as a creation. Because they said that, you know, for speech you need words and letters. That can't be with Allah. That's why it's created in something else. That's the Mu'tazila. That's their rationale on that. And it's impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have words and letters, so it has to be created in something else, and Allah doesn't have any eternal kalam. See, that's why the Ahlul Sunnah al-Jama'ah has to always preserve the verses and the text, and have to kind of find a way in between all of these in order to preserve the sharia. Now let me just mention some of these things that relate to this. Isa ibn Dinar was actually imprisoned for 20 years for not adopting the opinion of the Mu'tazila. Sha'bi, the great muhaddith, he was once asked about this, you know, because they would actually come and interrogate you. And in order to get away, he said, أَمَّا التَّوْرَاتُ وَالْإِنْجِيلُ وَالزَّبُورُ وَالْفُرْقَانُ فَهَذِهِ الْأَرْبَعَةُ حَادِثَةٌ فَهَذِهِ الْأَرْبَعَةُ حَادِثَةٌ So when he was asked, he said, as for the Torah, the Injil, the Zabur, and the Quran, the Furqan, these four, they are created. They're not eternal, they're created. What he meant by that was, pointed towards his fingers. These four, they're created. So this was a ploy that he played in order to get away and at the same time not say something absolutely wrong as well. Some say that this happened to Imam Shafi and that's what he said. Imam Ahmad, when he was imprisoned, he was imprisoned 
he was whipped until he became unconscious. It's related that Imam Shafi'i saw a dream before this, in which the Prophet ﷺ was giving the glad tidings to Imam Ahmad with paradise because of a trial that he was about to go through, an impending trial on him. And then that happened. So it was, uh, the trial was about the Khalqul Qur'an that was also mentioned by the Prophet ﷺ. So Imam Shafi'i, when seeing this dream, now remember, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was his student. He sent a messenger to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal to Baghdad, a letter, he sent a letter to Baghdad. When Imam Ahmad read this, he began to weep. And out of happiness at this beautiful dream, at his great dream, he took off his qamis. This is actually a tradition of the ulama and even the sahaba. If you remember when Ka'ab ibn Malik radiallahu anhu was given the glad tidings of his forgiveness, he took off the clothing that he had and gave it to the messenger. You know, a random person would come to tell him, meaning it wasn't somebody special necessarily. So he gave him the qamis that was on his body. He had two, he had two qamis on that day, the two shirts. When Imam Shafi'i was given this, he washed it. And he used that water. So now, in order to understand the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah position on the Qur'an, I'm going to explain this to you, so open your minds. Again, this is one of those other complex places that need to be understood only because of the problems that were created. This was not something which was necessarily clarified in this way during the time of the Prophet ﷺ because there was no requirement. He said, the kalam of Allah, they understood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's kalam, it's eternal, and so on and so forth. When we say and we insist, we assert that the kalam of Allah is eternal. The Qur'an is the kalam of Allah. The Torah is the kalam of Allah, meaning the original version. The Zabur, the Psalms, is also the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now, how is that the speech of Allah when we have created versions in front of us? We know that if this was a copy of the Qur'an, as we have copies like this, or you've got a typed up version, or when somebody reads the Qur'an, that's obviously created. It didn't exist before, then somebody brought it into existence. Meaning, it was manufactured, it was produced, it was printed. So how can that be eternal? We say at the same time that the Qur'an is eternal. So, this is what we have to understand. There's a special relationship between a copy of the Qur'an, or what we articulate as wording of the Qur'an, or what we memorize, and the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He has, that He possesses, which is, you can consider to be the divine archetype of what we have. That is eternal. That's what you call al-kalamun nafsi, His personal eternal speech. One way to kind of understand this is that, you know, before we say something, or before we do something, there's a thought that occurs in our mind. We don't articulate it necessarily. There's many thoughts that rise in our mind, but we don't articulate it. We think whether we want to articulate them or not, unless somebody just says everything without thinking. You know, we're talking about normal people. When we think about something, we then think about whether we should articulate it or not. So it's a thought. It's an abstract. It's not physical. Alright? Now again, that's just a very basic example to try to understand the distinction between what a kalam al-nafsi is and what a kalam lafzi is. So what we have is the kalam lafzi, which is the articulated kalam, the created speech. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala possesses in its original form, and that's been there from pre-eternity, that is eternal, it's the divine archetype, and that is without sounds, words, or whatever. 
Okay? What he did was, he had a portion of his speech revealed into the Lawh al-Mahfuz, onto the Prophet ﷺ, through the angel Jibreel, in Arabic, and that was the Qur'an. That became the created version of the Qur'an which reflects his divine archetype. Can you see the relationship? Obviously, we cannot comprehend Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala nor His attributes. Therefore, we cannot comprehend the speech of Allah in its original form. While the speech of Allah is in that eternal form, we can't comprehend that. We just don't have the ability. Therefore, in order for us to understand it, for it to be a message to us, He, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it in this beautiful, eloquent Arabic that was un surpassable by anybody else, unmatched by any Arabic speaker or poet. And it is his speech, but this is the created version of that reflects his divine archetype, that reflects his eternal speech. Is that understood? Is that quite clear now? If it's the first time you're hearing it, it does take some time to taper down. What Allah has and what He has from eternity is the divine archetype of a kalam which has no letters or words or sounds. Because Allah is not in need of those. And then he revealed a portion of that as the Torah in Aramaic or whatever language it was. But Allah's kalam is not in Arabic or Aramaic or anything like that. Do you understand? Allah's kalam, Allah's eternal speech is free of language. It's His speech and only Allah knows that. But then he reveals it in the different languages for the people of the time. Because that's what they can comprehend and understand. It's at their level. But it's still special because it's composed by Allah. Not, not by the Prophet ﷺ through inspiration by Allah, but directly by Allah in those words. That's the distinction between that and the hadith for instance. The hadith are inspirations. Then the Prophet ﷺ articulates them. Whereas the Qur'an is the direct wording of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for mankind in Arabic. Now that makes it easy for us to understand a number of things now. For instance, a question that arises on that is that in the Qur'an, some people might say, well, in the Qur'an it has the past tense. And this would be something the Mu'tazila would say. Is that in the Qur'an we have the past tense. We have the future tense. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا نُوحًا كَذَّبَتْ قَوْمُ لُوتٍ We sent Nuh as a messenger The people of Lut, they denied. There's a number of things that are in the past tense. There are things in the future tense. If time does not apply to Allah, past, present or future does not apply to Allah, then how is it that His speech comprises of past, present and future tense? You understand the question? Well, that's a quite simple. He revealed it to us at this particular time in human history. And thus, he made it relevant. So because Nuh passed before us, the people of Lut and Salih passed before us, he mentioned that in the past tense. So that it makes sense to us. But in the eternal divine archetype of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that speech, there's no tense because for him tense doesn't matter. It's information there, but it's made relevant to us in these particular wordings. There's another thing that it also makes easy for us to understand. You know when we talk about the seven huruf of the Qur'an, that the Qur'an has been revealed in seven ways of reading. Now there's a huge discussion about exactly what that means and so on. But the one thing is that, for example, 
you read ihdina sirat al-mustaqim ihdina sirat al-mustaqim with a seen instead of a sad or ihdina zirat al-mustaqim with the ishmam as they call it you read alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin ar-rahman ar-rahim maliki yawmiddin maliki yawmiddin now the thing is that these are various different ways of reading the quran when you read the word ibrahima ibrahama there's different ways of reading that as well wadduha wadduha wadduhi this doesn't mean that there's various different forms in the speech of Allah. In the divine eternal speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's one form. It's that eternal form, though Allah allowed it to be read in different ways, but it doesn't compromise the meanings. The meanings are all the same. It's just different ways of reading it to facilitate that. That's another clarification. The speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was so deeply discussed that there are so many things that have been mentioned about it. I'm only mentioning to you a few that are kind of interesting and that are relevant to us. Another few points is that, can we say that the Qur'an is created? It's bad adab to say that, it's wrong to say that. Because when we say the Qur'an, we have to say the Qur'an is eternal, the Qur'an is the speech of Allah. Because what we're referring to is the divine archetype. Yes, in order to educate, in a forum of education, when we need to clarify these points, just so that we can avoid going to the level of those who say that the kalam of Allah includes words and sounds. But this is actually the opinion of some of the Hanabila, the Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, and some of the people who follow him today. That's their opinion. What do we have to say? We have to say that the Qur'an, the speech of Allah, is eternal. But in a forum of education, when it comes to that, you can say, well, look, this is different. This is not the eternal speech of Allah. We just make that distinction. There's a very interesting discussion about Musa salam being the Kaleem of Allah. That was his special designation. Now, Allah spoke to many of the Prophets. Allah spoke to the Prophet wasallam. in fact, closer than any other Prophet. When the Prophet ﷺ went on his mi'raj, on his ascension, beyond the low tree, beyond the Sidratul Muntaha, where Jibreel ﷺ could not come as well, he met with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is a difference of opinion about whether he saw Allah or not among the Sahaba. The stronger opinion, I believe, is that he did see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But all that aside, Allah spoke to him. Allah spoke to Musa ﷺ. So what is it that makes it special that Musa ﷺ is the Kaleem of Allah? the interlocutor, the one who spoke to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the wadi, when he heard from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala his voice. Now there's a bit of a difference of opinion here about exactly how that took place between the Ash'aris and the Maturidis. Again, this is not one of those differences which are like serious. It's just an issue, uh, it's just a difference of opinion in terms of the description. The Ash'aris, they consider that Musa alayhi salam actually heard the divine speech of Allah. He heard the eternal speech of Allah. That's why he's called the Kaleem of Allah. How did he hear it? It was not sound. It was not words. But this was an absorption through all the pores of his body. So it was this kind of a... It was this kind of a transfer that he received. And Allah knows best. Again, these are things that are beyond us. And that's why these are just speculations and possibilities. The Maturidis, they say, no, nobody in this world has the ability to comprehend the divine, eternal speech of Allah. They just don't have that ability. So, why is Musa Alayhisam special? Because of the special circumstance, and when he spoke to him and addressed him, and he related that in the Qur'an, in this special manner. And it mentions in the Qur'an, نُودِيَ مِنَ الشَّاطِئِ الْوَادِ الْأَيْمَنِ فِي الْوُقْعَةِ الْمُبَارَكَةِ مِنَ الشَّجَرَةِ 
Ayya Musa, inni anallahu rabbul alameen. So it mentions in the Quran that it came from a tree. That the sound was projected into a tree and a created sound. They say it was just like the Quran. It was a created sound, specially projected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that reflected His divine speech that He wanted to speak to Him. And that was what Musa alayhi salam heard. So it was a created speech that he heard. And again, this is not something that we're going to be asked about on the Day of Judgment. This is for just additional information when we relate to the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one thing that's important is that the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is eternal. And what we have is the absolute reflection and the source of that was Jibreel alayhi salam, the angel, trustworthy angel, most reliable angel, and from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So there's no corruption in the transfer either. Okay, let's quickly finish this section off. I've pretty much explained everything that he's going to say. So we'll just quickly go through that. The Quran is the word of Allah that emanated from him without modality in its expression. He sent it down to his messenger as a revelation. The believers accept it as such literally. They are certain it is in reality the word of Allah, the sublime, the exalted. That's our belief. No word of this book that we have, which is the Quran, is other than the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. لَيْسَ بِمَخْلُوكٍ كَكَلَامِ الْبَرِيَّةِ Unlike human speech, it is eternal and uncreated. Then he says, فَمَنْ سَمِعَهُ فَزَعَمَ أَنَّهُ كَلَامُ الْبَشَرِ كَلَامُ الْبَشَرِ فَقَدْ كَفَرِ Whoever hears it and alleges it to be the human speech has disbelieved. Which basically means that you're just saying, oh, this is just human speech. That it's not Allah's speech. But you're saying it like, this particular speech is done by the human being. It's created, but it's reflective of the eternal speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That would be fine, but that's not something you go around doing. That's only done in a forum. In, when you're trying to educate and talk about the reality of this. فَقَدْ كَفَرْ وَقَدْ ذَمَّهُ اللَّهُ وَعَابَهُ وَأَوْعَدَهُ بِسَقَرْ حَيْثُ قَالَ تَعَالَى سَأُصْلِيهِ سَقَرْ فَلَمَّا أَوْعَدَ اللَّهُ بِسَقَرْ لِمَنْ قَالَ إِنْ هَذَا إِلَّا قَوْلُ الْبَشَرْ عَلِمْنَا وَأَيْقَنَّا أَنَّهُ قَوْلُ خَالِكِ الْبَشَرْ وَلَا يُشْبِهُ قَوْلَ الْبَشَرْ So whoever he is and alleges it to be human speech has disbelieved, is an unbeliever. I mean this is serious. Any verse of the Quran in fact. For Allah has rebuked, censored, and promised such a one an agonizing punishment, stating, I will roast him in the hellfire. That's a serious translation. Because Allah threatened those who allege, this is merely human speech. This was the criticism, or this was the point that some of these Quraysh would make in front of the Prophet ﷺ. That's why Allah says, سَأُسْلِيهِ سَقَرْ uh, So Allah threatened those who alleged, this is merely human speech, with an inferno of torment. We acknowledge and ascertained that it was the word of the creator of humanity and does not resemble human speech. So we'll end. So I'll just take a few questions if they're relevant to this. You talked about past and present tense. Can you elaborate the relationship of kana to verses like kana Allahu ghafoor rahima I mean, that's just an expression in Arabic. For those who are starting to learn Arabic, they learn that kana is a past tense. So literally speaking, it seems to mean that Allah was the ghafoor and rahim. Whereas He is the ghafoor and rahim. This is just eloquent Arabic where you use the past tense to denote a continuous tense. It's just more eloquent to use an abnormal way of doing it. I mean, this happens in Arabic all the time. For example, you say, Iyaka na'budu. Now, Iyaka is the object. Na'budu, we worship you. But rather than say na'budu ka, 
We worship you. He said, Iyaka na'budu. Which means only you do we worship. It says that, At-taqdeem ma haqqahu at-ta'khir yufid al-hasra wa takhsis which basically means that to change the position of something that's supposed to come after to before it provides the benefit of emphasis and specificity. This is a similar kind of method of using the eloquence of the Arabic language to do this. So it does, it's not to be translated in the past tense. Nobody's done that. And it wasn't something that even the kuffar made a big deal out of in the time because they understood the language. It's only today half-baked Arab Christians who like to bring those kind of things up. Why can we not see the jinn? That's the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it. There's wisdoms in that. They do relate though that in the hereafter, in paradise inshallah, they, we will be able to see them and they won't be able to see us. The human being and the jinn, though they were both created for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so they share in that sense. The human being is still the ashraful makhluqat. The human being is the most noble of Allah's creation. Okay, so whether there's extraterrestrial life on other planets that may be, you know, as some people like to hypothesize about uh, being more progressive than us and uh, way ahead and so on and so forth, we are the Ashraf al-Makhluqat. Unless there's a branch of the human beings that reach there somehow. And uh, I, get, I doubt it. Is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam hazir nazir? No, if that means that he's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he's everywhere watching everything at any given time by his own self, and he's present wherever he wants to be at any given time, just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, you try to make him the same as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, obviously that's a problematic idea to believe it that way. Is, is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa nur? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is a servant of Allah. He is a nur in the sense that his nur was created right in the beginning before the creation of the world. And that nur did pass down. But Prophet ﷺ is a human being born to a mother, a human mother and a father, biological human mother and a father. And he's a human being, but he's a very special human being in the sense that the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is very special, that is distributed among mankind, he had the greatest of the nur, very special nur. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about this in the Quran, where he says, وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا عَمَالُهُمْ أو كَظُلُمَاتٍ فِي بَحْرِ اللُّجِّيِّ يَخْشَاهُ مَوْجٌ مِنْ فَوْقِهِ مَوْجٌ مِنْ فَوْقِهِ سَحَابٌ ظُلُمَاتٌ بَعْضُهَا فَوْقَ بَعْضٍ إِذَا أَخْرَجَ يَدَهُ لَمْ يَكَدْ يَرَاهَا وَمَنْ لَمْ يَجْعَلِ اللَّهُ لَهُ نُورًا فَمَا لَهُ مِنْ نُورٍ And whoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not provide any nur for, then that person has no other form of nur. So this requires a lot more discussion about exactly a type of nur and so on and so forth. But the Prophet ﷺ is a human being and anybody who believes that he is not a human being, but he is nur only, then that obviously is really a big problem. But no doubt, he had a great illumination in his heart. Is the Allah al-Mahfuz created? Absolutely yes. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ says that 50,000 years before the creation of the world, Allah created the pen and the tablet and told the pen to write. Everything that was to happen until the day of judgment. And the pen wrote. So yes, that's definitely created. Just like his arsh and everything else is. Why was the Qur'an not inspired like the hadith? Well, obviously, the Qur'an was very special. It was the message of Allah to mankind in this pristine form that was supposed to be applicable. Hadith are also applicable, but this was very special. Special words that were from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that was a unifying factor of all of the Muslims. And it had to remain in that particular way. 
I think if this question was phrased the other way, why were the hadith not directly articulated, directly inspired with wording as well? That would be a better question because I don't really see the problem. I don't see why the question should actually arise of the Qur'an. Why wasn't the Qur'an inspired just like hadith and let the Prophet say as you wish? You know, I don't see why that should be even a question. I think the question should be, well, why weren't the hadith like that as well? That would have been a better question. Was the Prophet ﷺ created before Adam salam? I heard a hadith where Adam salam opened his eyes, he saw the Prophet's name on the throne of Allah. I don't know how you can link the name of the Prophet ﷺ to him being created. Allah's knowledge encompassed all things. It mentions about his nur being created, a special nur, but not the physical body of the Prophet ﷺ that was obviously created at his time. But he was the Rasul of Allah from before, and that's why this narration in which it talks about this mentions La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, the name of the Prophet ﷺ. But that, you can't infer from that that he was created in body, physical, biological body. Was the pen created first or the human? The pen was created before the human being as far as I can understand. The kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is his sifa, therefore eternal. But the Quran is a transcription of this in a form of Arabic with sounds and letters. So what we recite is that creation. Absolutely, it's creation because we're reciting, we're bringing into being. right? But it reflects the divine archetype if we're reading it correctly. Or do we say it is eternal with reference to its origin, eternal speech of Allah? Yes. In general, you're going to say this is the speech of Allah. You don't say eternal, whatever. Say this is the speech of Allah. When you say Quran is the speech of Allah, it is eternal. The Quran, the speech of Allah is eternal. When I'm saying this is the speech of Allah, it's eternal. I don't want to insinuate by that, that what I am saying is eternal. But no doubt, it's not a good idea to make this distinction all the time. The main thing is that we say that Quran is the speech of Allah and it is eternal. And that we leave it like that in general. Though we need to understand the difference. What is the difference between Iman and Aqidah? Is action part of Iman? Does Iman increase... Arrow up, arrow down. It's good, it's good, mashallah. Remember Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, some woman sent in his presence an apple. Somebody brings in an apple. And it's mostly green, but some red, the two colors. So, somebody brought it. Silence, no question, no words. He cut it in half, and he gave them the half, and he Said, and he basically returned that. A woman is asking whether her period has finished. It's mostly clear, but there's still some red. He cuts it in half and he shows the inside, it has to be perfectly white. This woman brings it in, obviously she must have been very, very intellectual as well, that she is able to send this and then think that Abu Hanifa is going to understand this. And then he cuts it in half and sends it back. I hope you guys understood. Anyway, what's the difference between Iman and Aqidah? Iman is belief. Aqidah is uh, the discipline of understanding what we need to believe. Iman is our belief in itself. right? So our belief will come about after we understand our Aqidah. Our belief will become more solidified the more Aqidah we, we have. Aqidah is uh, the creed or the belief system. Is actions part of Iman? Uh, not part of the definition of Iman. I think we might cover that a bit later. It's, it's a supplementary aspect. It's not core, fundamental of Iman that if somebody doesn't do actions, they're not Muslim. We don't believe that. That's the belief of the Khawarij.